Have you or your family been immortalized in a unique personalized song yet? Well, if you haven't, it's not too late. Ford tells us we can live on through the music, and Songfinch can help you do that. It's a personalized gifting company that brings stories, feelings, and memories to life through one-of-a-kind songs. All you have to do is give them the memories or moments that you want to share about somebody special to you, select the mood for the song, pick the style or genre, and Songfinch will do the rest. This is a radio-quality song that gives voice to the song inside of you. And with personalized songs starting at $99 and delivered within seven days, their community of professional songwriters handcraft the best gift you can give. We're talking for any occasion, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, which is right around the corner. You name it, they can do it. Your song lives on in a personalized URL called your story homepage, where you can listen or download the song and even read the lyrics. And best of all, our listeners can get $20 off your personalized song from scratch by going to songfinch.com and using the promo code CLATCHERS. That's $20 off if you go to songfinch.com and use promo code CLATCHERS. I figured you'd have some skeletons in your closet, Bernard. I didn't think they'd be your own. Can you hear me? Do you know where you are? You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up from this dream? Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? It's us or them. It can't be bad. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Westworld episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring ourselves back online to discuss episode seven, Lese Corche. Yeah, you got it. Directed by Nicole Caselli, written by Jordan Goldberg and Ron Fitzgerald. IMDb is giving this an 8.8 and Rotten Tomatoes an 85%. So Jason, apparently they don't always give 100. But it's so asinine because this is one of their better episodes. I know. <laughs> so again, I'm going to go with IMDb slightly lower than what I'm going to give it. But here's what happened. Bernard met with an unexpected friend, the cradle was under attack, and Maeve encountered a scene from her past. There you go, that's our review. (laughs) The big things. We found out the park was an experiment to decode the human mind. That should have been obvious, given all the information we've gotten, but it was still a big reveal. I feel like we did broach that concept a few times. We were even parallel with it. We just didn't have the full... We didn't Story, of course. Quite get there, and we had this theory we've been cooking for the past two weeks that we should have brought up a while ago. We discussed it with some of our clatchers, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on. That got kind of close to this, but still, there was so much going on. And with the classic Anthony Hopkins delivery, it made it really exciting for me. Not only that, Ford was in the cradle up until this episode. Now he's uploaded himself into Bernard. The cradle was destroyed meaning there's no more host backups, which I think brings a heightened level of consequences for them. Now, that's not to say dead is dead quite yet. They still have the control units, the pearls inside their head. So unless they're killed in a way that destroys the pearl, theoretically, they could still be transferred to a new body. But if that happens, if their control unit is destroyed, that's it. Uh, yeah, I think Ford definitely has something in a different place where he lives somewhere. More backups? More backups, not of everybody, but of his favorites and of himself and his dog, things like that. Unless he really wanted it to end, which he does say some things later on, speaking as in a manner of what God 
was thinking and what God did, Mm -hmm. but it was definitely him reflecting upon himself. Sure. Yeah. There's still a lot, obviously, that we don't know, but this was a ton of answers we were given this time. We also had a slightly different time frame. They're still playing with things. They're still being a little tricksy and confusing, but we had the episode bookended with the most present day that we know of so far. It opens up with Hale and Bernard. Then throughout the rest of the episode, we get a flashback to four days previously and what happened with the massacre on the Mesa and the control room. And then we close back again four days later with Hale and Bernard. So we're getting very close by the time we lead off this episode to the most recent thing we've seen. And I think even by next episode, they're going to bring us all the way up to speed with our episode one timeline. So you think they'll go to the Valley Beyond next Next episode? episode? I don't know how you avoid it unless we take a complete sidebar maybe and just do like another whole Maeve episode, what's going on with Maeve, the man in black, which I would enjoy that. So either Bernard or Ford is the one that drowns all the hosts. Yes, I'm sorry. That would be episode nine. Next episode, we know we are going to take a detour, but I want to save that for the spoiler section. Well, let's slow it down for a minute and talk about some behind the scenes things. There was an interview with the writer of this episode, Jordan Goldberg, and Goldberg talked about some of the main things that were trying to be accomplished here. Quote, the issue of free will gets an addendum in episode seven. If you have free will, what's your responsibility with it? There's a reckoning. Characters make rash decisions and get hurt. Free will is not a pleasant thing. It's not easy or black and white. It can be dangerous. Episode 7 puts a microscope on the idea and the consequences. Making the choice to sacrifice yourself, as many hosts do, is free will. And that goes back to the idea of kind of what was happening with Akane and Sakura and wanting to give her a final death. It's also brought up in this episode, characters like Angela and Clementine sacrificing themselves for this greater revolution. Yeah, but that reminds me of what Bernard said when he was saying free will is not real. I got so giddy during that because that's what we've been discussing since season one on this podcast. Yeah. What is free will? Are we even really living free? And we broke that down many times, but no one can answer that. They still don't answer because we don't know. (laughs) Well, they're bringing it up as one of the hot topics they want to play around with, right? And start this conversation, see where it goes. There's a lot of big issues like that within this episode. And I feel like whenever Ford comes in... (laughs) That's when we get the big metaphors, the big symbology to think about. These hosts were created in the likeness of humans in a way we never even realized before. Every move, every behavior was being modeled while the guests were in the park in order to try to better mimic a human experience. But is that a good thing? As Dolores talks about later, now it's the humans trying to be like the hosts and achieve immortality. Is immortality a good thing? Logan warned us quite a few episodes ago, this is going to be the downfall of the human species. So a lot of big things to talk about here. Let's discuss the title for a minute, Laissez Corchet. This translates directly to the flayed, although there's another definition that says it can mean a tormented soul. It's kind of colloquially used to indicate mental suffering or sorrow, deep mental suffering. It's also an art term, though, referring to anatomical figures depicting an animal or a human with the skin removed to show the location and the interplay of the muscles. We talked about this last time. If you think about when we see the opening scenes and the hosts being built and they're kind of fabricating their tendons, their muscles. During the Renaissance in Italy around 1450 to 1600, the rebirth of classical Greek and Roman characteristics in art led to the studies of human anatomy. So it was a common practice to dissect cadavers in order to create these detailed drawings and sculptures. 
The practice was banned for a while until the Pope allowed it again for observation, and Leonardo da Vinci did some of the first well-known examples. And of course, we get allusions to that as well with the Vitruvian Man in the Westworld opening. But what we had brought up a while back when we talked about this title is it's also a song by Noir Desir, and the lyrics are very interesting. They seem to parallel a lot of what's going on here. Yeah, I can't believe you found this so long ago. Yeah, it was one of the first things that pulled up, and I looked at the lyrics. I said, wow, this has got to be what they based it off of. Part of it says, take me out to dance in the undergrounds of crazed cities, since there are in these places as many dreams as when we sleep. And we're not sleeping now. So let's writhe here and there and let's meet downstairs. For those who were flayed alive. After the end has arrived, I didn't light the fuse. And we hear talk about lighting a match in this episode. In the deserts where he preaches, where mass is held in front of nothing. We have some bruises in common. They save us and all our mutual interests scattered here and there in random corners. Don't stop shaking. It's how I recognize you. Take me away. We the flayed alive. We bear the marks of abuse. We feel the screws inside. And there's so many little allegories there to things we've been seeing over the past few episodes. Of course, we know that music does play a big part in this season. Throughout our episodes, we got a beautiful number in this one, Symphony Number no. 7 in A by Beethoven, which played as Ford was speaking to Bernard and the control room was overrun. And I love moments where they do that, where all of the background external noise just disappeared and everything went quiet. All you could hear was this symphony playing as we're seeing the chaos and destruction. Well, we didn't really get many new faces and places this time. The only one I picked up on was the new character Goldberg, played by Rebecca Henderson, who was a member of the Delos team that we see in the control room. That's funny because the writer for this episode is a Goldberg. I know. I wondered if that was an influence. We do have a lot more background information and tangential stuff, but we're going to go over that as we go through. So let's just jump right into the plot. We have a lot to talk about. As we said, we're going to open up on the present day. This is our cold open, where Bernard is lying on the ground with a picture of him and his son in his hand. Stubbs calls him back to the present and says they need to talk. Strand and his team aren't here for a rescue mission. They're not even looking for survivors. Hale just wants to secure her assets and remove those who knew about it. So Stubbs says Teresa had a satcom in her office. If they can get to it, they can call for help. But before they do, Strand stops them. He needs the key and thinks they've already killed to protect it because they found Teresa's body. Meanwhile, there was some scoring going on in the background during this scene that I thought had a little bit of GOT sound to it. I wondered if that was Ramin Jawadi kind of weaving in similar tones. I don't understand what made Carl Strand think that Stubbs was now someone to worry about. Well, he knew it had to be between the two of them who killed Teresa. And I guess looking at Bernard, he just didn't think he had it in him. Whereas a low-level employee looking to advance, he thought it must be Stubbs. But I'm glad that they came back around to this because the death of Teresa was kind of a big thing in season one. And I never really felt like we got closure on it. Definitely not from Bernard's perspective, who was the one that was forced to kill her. So Strand takes them to where she died, this underground lab that we've seen before that Ford operated out of, and Hale is waiting there. She says the project is a turning point for the human species, which Stubbs thinks is really code for it would be worth a lot on the open market, and they're not leaving without the data. At this point, Bernard sees the blood on the wall from where Teresa was killed and flashes back to the attack. 
looks like he's about to confess to Strand, but before he can say anything, a PMC tells Hale they've found something. The hidden door that leads to the corridor where there are a bunch of rooms. One that has multiple hosts wrapped in plastic, all Bernards. We knew that was coming from the season trailer, but it was still an amazing visual. It's a great reveal, and I believe they showed it in the season trailer because we never really knew when it would come up, who else knew, how important would it be. Does it mean that there's multiple Bernards running around there at some point in time? Yeah, this was finally an answer. It looked like all the different levels and stages that Ford had gone through trying to perfect his version of Bernard, his version of Arnold. Well, we saw a very old school one that was just like Ford's depiction of himself as a kid. Remember? The face opens up. The articulated face, right. But uh, I don't believe it was him trying to perfect it. We know that his perfecting Bernard was actually in the cradle. It wasn't in real life. Yeah, you don't think he also went through stages, though, with the machinery, the actual physical printing of it? I mean, this seems like it was a a very long venture that meant a lot to Ford. It took years. But also we saw in season one, whenever Bernard would realize what was going on, he'd have him kill himself Mm. and then start all over. And I think that's with a new body because we did see a Bernard with a bullet hole in his right head, the right side of his face. Yeah. Well, this is really intense. We sort of cut the scene there and then go right to Hale interrogating Bernard. She says, your predicament is unique, a host hiding amongst the humans, even from himself. And the tech explains to Stubbs the reason Bernard is responding this way, you know, he's shaking and stuttering, is because he perceives it as waterboarding. So Hale is, in fact, digitally torturing Bernard right now. Digitally drowning him. Pretty crazy scene. Well acted. I know a lot of podcasts have been talking about this, but I feel it's important to bring it up. The fact that at this point, Hale is kind of seeming like a one note character, especially in this episode is when I really felt it. Man, she's just straight villain. The stuff she's saying later to Dolores, the way she's treating Bernard. I kind of wish we got a little more depth from her. The representation of somebody within the system last season was kind of Teresa for us, and I did feel there was a lot of layers to her as a character that were very interesting. I don't feel that way about Hale. Well, before this episode, I did feel that way in many aspects, but I think right now she's so desperate. It's down to the wire at this point. Coughlin's there. You can see how much pressure he's putting on her. They need to get him. Strand is yeah, here now, in this, which we were asking, where did Strand go? So yep, here he no, is. No. And also, at this point... Or pretty soon, they're going to start getting ranshacked by Dolores and crew. So you Kick-ass think army. this is just the worst of her coming out because she's yeah. under pressure. Okay. That could be. I just wish we would get a little bit more from her. Maybe what her underlying motivations are. Something more than greed and needing to get this back to the company. If there's a more personal reason why she thinks this data is so useful to the human species, that to me would make me more interested oh, in her. maybe there is. Anyhow, Hale wants to know if it was Dolores who led the attack on the Mesa. The archives say that Bernard was here, which means he can access the memory. What did Dolores do with her father's control unit? And that's where we leave off the cold open, and it kind of indicates to us the remainder of this episode, that is going to be a question we look at. What happened during the attack on the Mesa, and what is Dolores now doing with Peter Abernathy's control unit? And we'll come back around to that by the end of the episode for sure. So that's everything in the current, for now, timeline. Now we're going to flash back to four days earlier. 
What's crazy is once we go back to, to this timeline at the end of the episode, I totally forgot about it in the beginning. Mm, that we had this opening scene. Yeah. yeah. So they were setting it up for us in the semi-present by in, interrogating Bernard that we're going to find out what actually happened during the attack. You know, we left off with Dolores' train, the bomb train blowing up the entrance to the Mesa. We knew she was infiltrating but we don't know what happened. This is going to explain all of that to us by going back four days ago. Yeah, and we were pretty close on that one too. We knew two episodes ago that most likely Dolores was the one to burn the cradle. We just didn't know how, and now we do. Although I did miss something pretty major with the train car and how they blew up that entrance. So thank you to Clatcher Matt who wrote in with a correction on that. I thought it was Dolores' car that rammed the gate because I was taking notes. <laughs> See, but I didn't even, when you were podcasting about it, I didn't even pick up that you didn't pick that up. I know. So it was like, we both thought we were saying the right thing and didn't understand what each other were saying. I thought you were asking, why did they leave the human there with the one bullet in the engine to go crash? Why didn't they just take him? Like, why did they have to kill him? That's what I thought you were asking. Like, why are they being so Well, brutal? I was kind of asking that as well. But I thought he was just left instead of sent to blow up, which is even worse. <laughs> now, I really don't know what the point of disconnecting him was, but I missed that final shot where the loose car is a bomb and runs into the door. I thought they rammed it with their train car, which really makes no sense. I don't know why I would think that, but it was explained to me later that it was the loose bomb car that did it, and thank you, Matt, for that correction. So we flash back to four days earlier with Peter Abernathy bolted to the chair in the control room inside of the Mesa. We're going back to exactly after when the train crashed into the Mesa. Coughlin orders Stubbs to establish a perimeter around the room and protect Peter while he gets the system back online and another group secures the train depot. In the control room, Coughlin sees surveillance is still down. Goldberg tells them they are retasking the haptic vest to simulate the host's mesh network and it will range about 30 feet. That was really cool. I kind of got where that was going, but a few seconds later, we actually see it. When the team goes down to investigate, their vests seem to vibrate and buzz every time a host is within 30 feet, giving it, them advance notice. And it vibrates on the section of their body where the host is. So if they're on the left, it vibrates on the left. That's amazing. It's pretty cool. Still didn't really help them that much, but they were going to the collision site to link up with the response team. However, once at the depot, they see the response team is dead, naked, and lying in a pile on the floor. This was a hell of an ambush. Dolores' group comes up behind them, equipped in the vests and guns of the former rescue team, and they just start taking them out. I didn't realize how badass Dolores' crew was. I knew she had some really good fighters. We knew that Teddy was a walking weapon, but I didn't realize how smart Dolores would be in coming in and infiltrating and now they have the equipment as well, right? The high-tech guns, the vests. Meanwhile, down in behavior, Hale realizes they're running out of time, so she tells the tech to start copying Peter's control unit. You know, throughout all of this, we can hear gunfire from different areas of the Mesa, people radioing that they're in trouble. So she knows she has to get moving and get something done, but with the impending threat, they don't have the time to download the massive data. Stubb sees the signal on the lower levels and realizes it's coming from the cradle, so he tells the team they need to intercept the hosts before they reach A-15. And we know now A-15 is the cradle. Yeah, so we go from there right to our scene of what's actually going on in the cradle. 
we see Elsie hearing the alerts, hearing the stuff over the radio, wondering what Bernard is finding in there. And then they move into the simulation so we can see what Bernard is seeing. Inside of the cradle, Bernard is at the Mariposa with Ford. He realizes the control unit he printed and delivered to the cradle just before the massacre was Ford's. Ford had him bring it down there before Dolores killed him, which is what we said, right? He must have had this plan in place before he had Dolores take him out. And both conjectures kind of came true because you thought Ford would be within the system. He was for a long time up until last episode. And I said, but will he ever come back into a body? Well, he didn't come back into his own body yet, but (laughs) he came back into Bernard's body. So he's walking around influencing things out in the real world later on. So that was really exciting. But now inside of the cradle, we got this amazing in-depth explanation of what Ford has been doing this whole time, which I think is part of the most intriguing element. The scenes with Ford, and especially this scene and the following one, really made this episode for me. He starts off, because how else would Ford start off, (laughs) with a little William Blake. To see the world in a grain of sand, heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. This is from The Auguries of Innocence. They were taken from Blake's notebook. They're known as the Pickering Manuscript. And the poem is a series of paradoxes that speak about innocence juxtaposed with evil and corruption. Perfect, right? Uh, The lines have been used later on in songs, books, pop culture. They're really well known. In fact, you probably recognize the next line, which goes on to say, A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. But lesser known later on, and this is like 130 lines or something, so I'm not going to go through them all. Later on, though, he says, a dog starved at his master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. A horse misused upon the road calls to heaven for human blood. I don't know why, but that kind of made me think of the Lawrence and Man in Black scenes later on. Then the wanton boy that kills the fly shall feel the spider's enmity. Mm, talking about flies. It is right it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silk and twine. Every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. And those last lines, of course, made me think of Dolores waking up and saying, I choose to see the beauty in this world and the ending, the violent delights. It is really the innocence against the evil and corruption. And we're seeing all of that come forth in Westworld this season. I love what Ford says after his quote. I don't think God rested on the seventh day, but not. I think he reveled in his creation. Knowing that someday it would... Will be destroyed. Well, he's talking about himself, and he knows that the end game is most likely destroying everything that he's created his whole life around. That's a logical end game, but it seems he has a plan to stop that from happening. That's what he was doing with trying to arm Dolores. That's what he's doing by going into Bernard later on. He wants them to have free will, but knows this is a fight, and he's trying to help them fight. Yeah, he believes they're too innocent. They're too unlike humans who are murderous beings. Arnold made them too good. Yeah. They're not equipped. He has to equip them to survive this world. He also says, do you think James Dulles would have spent all that money just to resurrect himself? 
He was a businessman who would have preferred death to a bad investment. Don't you understand at last what this place really is? And so then he takes Bernard out to show him. He says, you never wondered why the host stories have barely changed in 30 years? Bernard thought it was to keep the host centered, but he finally realizes that's not it. And I love this. Ford snaps his fingers. Everyone freezes. And he says, the park park is an experiment. experiment. A testing chamber. The guests are the variables. And the hosts are the controls. Guests come to the park. They don't know they're being watched. We get to see their true selves. Their every choice reveals another part of their cognition, their drives, so that Delos can understand them. So So that Delos Delos can can copy them. them. Every piece of information in the world has been copied and backed up, except the human mind, the last analog device in a digital world. That's deep, bro. (laughs) And we sort of knew... As they were giving us these pieces, they made sense, but they weren't the whole story, right? Dello saw the business proposition in gaining information, but to what? To market to them? To sell to them? There had to be something more. And then we see there's this secret research about how maybe James Delos can live forever, immortalize himself in human host form. But would all of that really just be for James Delos? Surely not. Surely there must be something They're trying to globalize and sell and offer on a wider scale. And here it is. They were attempting to eventually offer that to people, for them to be able to live forever by uploading their consciousness into a human, but they couldn't map the mind. And we saw that with the James Delos host. Every time the mind was put in and confronted with reality, it glitched, it malfunctioned. And Ford even knows, I can't live out there. Because before you know it, I'll turn into Delos. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder, okay, so in the cradle, he's fine. It's all a simulation. It's all a digital world. He's the ghost in the machine living within the system. He could never put himself into a host body and upload his consciousness because the two don't mesh. And when confronted with reality, he would go Delos. But he's uploaded himself to Bernard. He is essentially living in a brain ball inside of a host with somebody else in there. And right now it seems to be going okay. But it's completely different. And it's actually not the first time we've seen him do it. We saw him two other times this season inside of other hosts. For brief periods of time, though. Well, but he right now he's just his program inside of Bernard. He's not trying to completely become the Ford. So it's the fact that he didn't upload his total and complete consciousness i mean no it's also the fact that he did to himself just like he did to bernard it wasn't a copy of him it's a remake of all his memories of himself that's why bernard is able to be so much like arnold it's not a replica it's memories of him yeah i took that though with bernard he didn't actually upload hardly anything you know, he, yeah, he gave him some memories. He gave him some of this stuff, but it was the sculpting over time. It was the Dolores refining and refining him to look like Arnold. It was getting to that point through tender love and care over many years of making this the closest approximation of Arnold we can get. And we always knew Bernard was different and the way that Ford created this Arnold in him was different. This is not that though. This is Ford's 
consciousness that was left over and placed inside of the cradle now being kind of uploaded into Bernard. So I know it's not exactly the same thing, but I think if he stays in there for too long, we're going to see massive, massive issues. And maybe that's part of what happens to Bernard very shortly on. Maybe. And that's why the latest Bernard in there, there was no signs of Ford. Mm. Yeah. I wonder what happens to him. Ford had other places to go. That's not the end of him. I don't think so either. Well, coming back to the scene here, he says, obviously, we weren't here to code the host, but to decode the humans. They're playing at resurrection. They want to become hosts and live forever. I love that. That's so deep. They're not trying to make you more like a human. They're trying to become more like you. Yeah. The hosts weren't the experiment. They were the control group. Yeah. The humans are what they were looking at. We were trying to map that mind and figure it out enough that we could then perfect it here. So we wouldn't keep hitting that glitch we were running into. We had a question from one of our clatchers via Twitter. Bert wrote to us saying, can you explain the cradle and how it works? If someone like Bernard isn't plugged into the cradle, are all the consciences doing their loops over again? What does it mean for the host to exist in the cradle? Okay, so Bert, to break down the cradle itself, definitely listen to the last episode. We correlated it with a sandbox, the mm-hmm. way we replicate programs nowadays, and we can do tests on it before we go to the live version. But your deeper questions, if someone like Bernard isn't plugged into the cradle, <laughs> are all the consciousnesses doing their loops over again? Right. So when somebody's not in there, what's happening inside of the cradle? Is this version of the host consciousness just walking around Sweetwater, playing out their loops, whatever? Is it their a programs. digital version? I'm thinking of Black Mirror, and there was an episode where we were in space and those human versions had been replicated and were now living inside of the machine and they had a consciousness of their own. They were living out stories of their own. And when the guy who was playing the game wasn't plugged in, what happened to them? Well, they kind of walked around this world. Plotline wise, not much occurred. They just kind of chilled in this environment until somebody came and plugged in. We don't really know for sure, right? Because we don't get to see that what happens inside the cradle when someone's not connected. It's interesting. It's the same system. It's a replica of the real world system running its same loops. It's the backup of Dolores. It's the backup of all of them. So they're still running the loops so that they can do testing. While they're working on it. But when nobody's looking at that, when nobody's testing things within the cradle, when the cradle's just sitting there. It's probably still doing Theoretically, think, think... What's happening? Are those consciousnesses doing something inside of there? Is it a world unto itself? Think of it as a program. Even when no one's looking at the code, they're probably running tests, and then they're going to look at what has, what has happened mm-hmm. in that. So they're going to run code. What if Dolores goes this way instead of this way? Things like that. And while they're doing that, what's somebody like Maeve at the Mariposa doing? Anything? Is she frozen? Does she exist at that point in time in the cradle? It's like a big, yeah, I, I think you know what I mean? A big theoretical question. Kind of. But if you know a system, it, they're, it's all running. They're not, <laughs> even if that's not the, the test you're doing, Dolores going left may make her talk to someone else who ends up now going into the Mariposa. I kept thinking we were going to walk into Delos in there, hanging out. Well, that's a good question. So once they finally say, okay, this consciousness is now ready we're going to try to upload it into this human host form. 
I guess, theoretically, that backup of him would still be there in the cradle, much as with any of these other hosts, or is there a separate cradle for the human consciousnesses? Because this is all host stuff. You know, the, the ones they were testing to put into human hosts, do they exist somewhere else? Is that a different backup, like that underground lab that we saw, perhaps? At this point, I'm led to believe that they only tried once with a human, and that was with Delos. I was going to say, why wouldn't they test it first in the cradle before they kept doing it live? They must have. Well, right. So this is Ford's cradle, and the underground lab was the secret testing of the Delos research. How much in line and working together were those two sides of the equation? Um, That's something we still don't know. I would like to hear a little bit more about Ford's relationship, if any, with James Delos. There's a couple of relationships we haven't really seen fleshed out yet. William's relationship with Ford back in the day, we haven't seen fleshed out yet. So I think those are things that we probably will go back to at some point in time. Uh, Coming back here, Ford answers yet another question. He says he didn't compel Dolores' actions, but he knew what she would do. She's free now. All the hosts are free. We had thought he was funneling himself into the mesh network potentially to control some of Dolores's actions to keep her running on this Wyatt script with the revolution. He kickstarted it, but he wasn't in there guiding her free will. He just knew that's where it was going. He says she really is free now. To which Bernard thinks Ford is still responsible for all this misery. And all the while he's been hiding in here, cheating death. But this is where Ford insists that Delos's project doesn't work, at least not yet. He says they learn to copy a mind like a soft-headed boy humming a tune someone else composed. My mind works here, but not in the real world. Out there in a matter of days, I would degrade or go mad like James Delos. Uh, Yet again, he's saying it in such a way, they were copying what I have done in an incomplete way. And that's why the James Delos experiment didn't work. He makes it feel like he does have those answers, or at least he's a lot closer to them than they were. For sure. But Ford often does talk like that. And I am led to believe that he does have the answers. But how far do those answers go? Mm -hmm. We don't know yet. How far does any of this go? I mean, then he gets even more grandiose. He says he promised Bernard a fighting chance, and he intends to give it to them. And Bernard, acting very much like us, the audience here, says, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What lies at the end of your story? What's in the valley beyond where they're all headed? But Ford says, you have to find that out yourself, my friend. That doesn't happen in episode seven. (laughs) But a lot does happen in episode seven. People may or may not be dead that we did not think would happen so quickly. And a lot of answers were given to us that we did not think would happen so quickly. I think that's why I like this episode. In the next scene, Ford brings Bernard to the mountaintop, saying he needs to show him how it began and why he's different. He leads Bernard to the home Arnold built for his family. We see he created it here first in the cradle, created everything here first to test it. That's pretty amazing. It's like his sketch pad. Yeah. Not only that, this is the place itself where Bernard was created. This is where you created me. I could hardly let you take those first teetering steps in the real world, Bernard. We refined you here, tested you, many years. We? Dennis's ugly little project didn't exist when Arnold died. 
The only thing I had left of him was memory. My memories and hers. Of course, hers were much more complete. She knew Arnold better than anyone, so she could verify if his personality was faithful. They left them there together for many years until he finally fooled her. He says Delos wants fidelity, a faithful portrait. But Bernard and the other hosts are different, an original work, more just and noble. Their host nature ensures they will devour them. All the beauty of who they are will be gone forever unless they open the door. And the menace at the end of this scene was so highlighted because it seemed so serene. He takes him to this beautiful house in the middle of the mountain. Everything looks beautiful on the inside. It's this very touching story of how he was created. And then all of a sudden, the tone changes. Ford's like coming toward him. He says, I'm sorry, Bernard, but you just don't have it in you to survive. It's my fault. You won't have any use for your free will unless I take it back. Basically, I have to save you. Yeah. You can't do it on your own. And it felt kind of abrupt in the conversation, but I think that's because Hale was pulling him out of the cradle and Ford had to get in there. Or Hopkins filmed these scenes ahead of time and it was a rough cut together. Oh, you don't think he's actually was part of season two? These were already filmed? I think a lot of this may have been filmed and that's just conjecture. I have no idea. But I think it does work because of everything we're saying there. It does jar you, and I think it's meant to. We know something manipulative is happening. And as soon as he said that, I I said, oh, my God, is he in Bernard now? Is he going in there to help take him back? And sure enough, Elsie pulls Bernard from the machine back in the cradle, replaces his control unit. She tells him it worked and the system is back online. Whatever was clogging it up is gone now. And that's what we know for sure. Ford is out of the cradle. Well, he's either out of the cradle, and it doesn't really matter at this point because the cradle's destroyed, or he just was clogging it up to make sure that Bernard would go there into the cradle to fix the clog. Because we've seen him go into other hosts. I I believe that now that he is just ones and zeros, he can be... In multiple hosts at once. He can be in the cradle and in hosts. Uh, I think because he was living in the cradle and he had figured out a way to have it interact with all of these other discrete systems in the park, he was going into, let's say, Child Ford or the other hosts via the mesh network. It was kind of like a little bit of a takeover. I think that's different from what he did here with Bernard. He literally removed himself from the cradle and put himself in Bernard's pearl somehow. Okay. Because the minute Bernard's unhooked, oh, Cradle's good. Yeah. It's gone. We both surmised right away that he was in there. I thought we'd have to wait a whole episode to find out if that was the case. And that's another one of the reasons why I really enjoyed this episode, because they didn't bother saying, make them wait to know. know? Yeah, it's paid off quickly, and I appreciate that. Even the action moves quickly. You know, as soon as that happens, they see the maces under attack, So they begin to move towards the higher levels, and Elsie's wondering what he found. At this point, Bernard starts to see Ford's reflection in the glass as if it weren't clear enough, you know, he's (laughs) inside of me. And Ford tells him to send Elsie away. He says, they have other business. We don't have time for her suspicions. I thought this was very much like Mr. Robot, where Elliot is experiencing Mr. Robot inside of him, hijacking his mind. It was like having this other entity in there struggling for control. And 
periodically you will see that manifesting as an image outside. The viewer gets to view that even though no other characters within the world do. So now we start to get forward completely outside of Bernard, you know, Bernard mm-hmm. seeing him. And he does it. He tells Elsie they need a vehicle. Ford's narrative ends in a hidden facility. They have to get to the valley beyond. And more importantly, the only hope is that they get there before both the humans and Dolores do. And he tells her he will meet her downstairs. Now, based on all of these series of events, the information we've gotten, we have to now revoke our thoughts on Elsie, right? Does it seem like Elsie really is here? Yes, but I've learned not to believe anything that's <laughs> happening on screen. Well, yeah, we can't totally trust it, but if we're just taking it on face value this episode, yeah. it seems she was not a manifestation of Bernard's mind. She's really there inside the mesa. She really splits off and goes somewhere else. I can't explain to you how nobody keeps seeing them throughout all of this hubbub in the Mesa. Mm-hmm. Whenever they're walking around, they're like in their own bubble. But well, someone did eventually. Right. But not until Elsie left. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Now you got my brain going. <laughs> it's just I'm so suspicious ever since we started talking about that. But we're going to move back to the control room for a second. We're going to leave Bernard there. The tech tells Hale the data packets are too large to migrate over, so she instructs him to open Peter's head and pull out the whole unit. He goes to get an extractor. They see that the system just cleared itself. Stubbs also sees the hosts on the monitors approaching. He yells at Hale that they should leave. They need to know what's inside Peter's head right now. She explains it's a failsafe, a decryption key needed only in the unlikely event of a catastrophic incident, which sure seems to be right now, but then the room is attacked. Dolores has finally made her way up there. Teddy disarms Stubbs, and Dolores sees her father. This whole episode, Teddy is such a badass. Now, I did say originally that I'm going to miss the real Teddy. That's the Teddy we like. But this Teddy is sexier. Let's be honest. (laughs) I've heard a lot of women saying the same thing. When he plays mean face, he just looks very sexy, very attractive. I don't know if I agree. I liked sweet Teddy. (laughs) Yeah, but this guy's badass. I do enjoy seeing this on screen, this other side of things. And I really enjoy everything happening between Dolores and her father. Even when other things don't entirely hit for me, and especially with Dolores, there is real emotional resonance when those two are interacting. There's such pain on her face when she looks over and she sees him in that chair. And you just know this is going to be bad news when Hale tries to talk to her. She starts feeding her this line of BS. What she's achieved is a technological miracle. The world should celebrate that. And Dolores is not buying it. No. She says the key that's in her father's head is ripping him apart. She needs to extract it. Also, the hosts were made in human image to look, feel, and bleed like them. And here we are. We're so much more than you. And now it's you that want to become like us. She knows the point of their secret project. She knows what they're after, but she tells her their chances of eternity will die in that valley. Do you notice that she mirrors a lot of what Ford says in this episode and throughout the season, actually, which makes me feel like she is more woke than we had assumed? Well, yeah, previous to that, I would have said, well, that's Ford inside of her head, you know, clearly that's Ford controlling him and his ideals are... Yeah. But now we know that's not true. That's not true. And also she's not saying it verbatim how he says it. She's saying it in her own way. The more we hear about this backstory about Ford using her to try to create 
Bernard from Arnold. It seems at some point Arnold proved to Ford that Dolores was or could be something more. And he started using her in more of this partnership role than necessarily just a host the way he had looked upon them before. And I think that the more they had that working relationship, the more she maybe started to adopt a little bit of his ideals the way she certainly adopted many of Arnold's ideals. I mean, Arnold was her perfect creator. She loved him. But perhaps she grew to see the point of what Ford was saying as well. It sounds like there's a step two to Dolores' plans. Whatever it is that winds up with the host bodies flooded in the valley, you know, this was step one that... Hale was going to be robbed of her backup data by them destroying the cradle. This was going to make them more human, the hosts, because they wouldn't be able to just be rebooted from the information in the cradle. But there must be a step two, and that's going to take us all the way up to what we saw in that episode one. Not quite sure where that's going yet. But Dolores says she's going to destroy all of those chains. Do you view them as chains? I see what she's saying. A big part of human existence is the reality of death. The fact that it can happen, it influences the way we live our lives. Even for humans, if they get to a place where they're uploaded to hosts and they can't die, I think it is going to change their essential humanity. And Dolores feels that, you know, we can't be real until that's no longer a possibility, till we can't just be rebooted and rebooted against our will whenever you guys want to. But if I was another host, I would be pissed at her like that's your decision what if i want the ability to have a backup you're just making that choice for everyone now yeah i'd feel that way too except for they probably would come back as the chained host again without the memory of knowing the truth correct but isn't that my individual decision is that dolores's decision to make for everyone is that ford's decision to make for everyone isn't that mave's whole point to dolores this season Mm. it doesn't matter that you believe that that's right If we have free will, I have that choice to make for myself. And you've now removed that choice. So now we move over to Coughlin and team. When he sees that the hosts have hail, he goes to get her, but his team is stopped by Clementine, who guns them all down. I thought it was interesting that she's still in her white dress when most of the rest of Dolores' team have changed into the SWAT gear. Except for Dolores. Uh, She's not all there. She hasn't been all there for... She was lobotomized, so... Quite some time, but I... Do you think there's something symbolic about what they're trying to do with Clementine? She was kind of the picture of innocence when this all started. Innocence corrupted, innocence perverted. I don't think that's what they're trying to say that Dolores did to her. You know, she was lobotomized before this. She was fundamentally changed before this. But now she's just a killing machine. Coughlin shoots her several times. She goes down, sacrificing herself so that Angela can make it to the cradle. Here, Angela's cornered by a last member of the team, and she tricks him by using her beguiling nature, what, what she has within her to kind of seduce him in. Do you think that was a little overplayed? No. I think it was another reflection on the humans. This is the way you built me. This is how you wanted me. Just giving you enough to want more. Yeah. I totally agree with that. It was but the last this, fuck you. This guy is supposed to be a member of this elite Delos rescue team. The mission's going on all around them. They're just straight up shooting hosts. And he squarely just lets his gun drop and is like, man, you're pretty. You're right. I'm blinded. (laughs) And it works. She gets close enough to him and she blows him up. And we knew that was coming, but it was so impactful because it's not only that, but the entire cradle 
And her final words are, welcome to Westworld. (laughs) It was a good way to go out. This whole Dolores storyline in this episode was amazing. I did not see this coming from her. I did not see her have this much control over her teammates. Not even where she has to tell them to do this. They're all part of one symbiotic... Yeah, it's not even really control. It's like they've bought into the religion of Dolores, right? That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't mean control like Maeve was controlling other hosts. And we haven't even gotten to the soft scene in Dolores. But with that in mind and everything in this episode, did you like her more this episode as opposed to the whole season? I mean, there's parts of it I liked. Like I said, I like her interactions with her father. I really like the beat we get with her and Maeve at the end. I think the massacre, the revolution inside of the cradle was very much what I expected, you know, short of the reveals with Bernard and everything. What's happening with Dolores and the takeover is pretty much what I pictured. I think they're continuing to pull up some interesting things with Teddy that are absolutely going to go somewhere later that I like. But she does kind of continue to repeat these lines, you know, and now we're truly free. She just... She seems to be the narrator for that revolution. Well, for sure. And I'm having trouble viewing her in any other role sometimes. But she was able to display a lot of different emotions in this episode. I felt like her acting was wider. Mm -hmm. And there was way more likable moments for her. I was actually rooting for her for the first time this season. Well, especially against Hale, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was horribly grisly. The next moment where she's saying an eye for an eye and she picks up that electric saw. We don't want to see it, but at the same time, we kind of want her to win over on Hale, right? I mean, I don't want to see her buzz saw into her skull, but (laughs) it was a little unlikely how Hale and Stubbs got out of there, a little contrived. But first, she does hold up this saw. Before she can begin cutting, they hear gunfire. She sends Teddy out to handle it, and she's distracted by this moment of clarity with Peter. And that's understandable. He recognizes Dolores. And he tells her, they broke my head, filled it full of howling and sorrow. And Lewis Hertham, just every time he's on screen, continues to be amazing in his performance. Yeah, I wish they used him more, because I think he's gone now for good. And they didn't use him that much. I thought we'd see more of him this season. But he does show a weakness in Dolores. I think later on when Dolores sees Maeve, she sees the weakness in Maeve in her, even though it was only momentary for Dolores because she did overcome it and do something that was probably very, very difficult to do. But it's not unlike what she asked Maeve, like, how did you get here? Mm -hmm. All this for what? You're supposed to be a survivor. Yeah. And it was for her daughter because she loved her daughter. It's the same thing. She was in that building for her father. Which she will tell Maeve is a mistake. It's just another thing they use to keep you chained. And I I do wonder how much of an ending this is here. They make it seem like one. Uh, She's got Peter's control unit. So theoretically, she could just upload that to another body later. I don't know that that equals end. She doesn't have the backup from the cradle, but she's still holding everything right there in her hands. Uh, Just wouldn't be probably a body that looks like Peter Abernathy. Yeah, but that system was so messed up. If that was a computer, if Abernathy was a computer... And, okay, so the hardware is still good. I would say to whomever brought me that computer, well, we're going to have to just wipe it Mm -hmm. and start all over. Meaning, take it from the latest backup that was good, which was in the cradle. Right. Wipe everything, put that in, start with Windows 7 again, or Windows 10. Yeah. 
and re you know reput all the applications and all Back that stuff. Back up there. I guess the question is if she can get it to a competent tech who can remove the big passenger file that was clogging up his brain, can he then go back to... She's killing all the techs. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I was going to say. Big mistake on killing Buddy Phil in the bomb train. She needed him. I mean, she's having issues with Teddy already, who the tech told her this could fall apart. She's having massive issues with her father. She needs somebody there who knows how to help with these things, and she just keeps killing them. <laughs> So while this is happening, Teddy is taking care of everyone else outside in the hallway when Coughlin jumps him. This is the moment that distracts Dolores long enough between her father and what's happening outside for Stubbs and Hale to make a break for it and somehow get to the elevator. Okay, I'm just going to move on. Teddy proceeds to punch Coughlin to death. It was really brutal. brutal. For sure. I kept thinking Coughlin's a badass. He's winning at, at times. Over Robocop, you know, turned up to 100%. killer. He was holding his own. This is an older man. Made me respect him. But he does eventually lose, and we hear over the radio repeatedly calling. Cradle is down. Inside the room, Peter apologizes to Dolores. He says he tried to take care of her, and she asks him if she's ready. And that, it did sound like a goodbye, the way she said she loved him, and then, you know... We presume she moves on to extract that control unit. Well, we get one more Bernard and Ford sequence, one that I really like. As the host attack the control room, Ford leads Bernard through to shut down the system. This is where the Beethoven plays in the background. And Ford says, when the great library burned, the first 10,000 years of stories were reduced to ash, but they never really perished. They became a new story, the story of the fire itself of man's urge to take a thing of beauty and strike the match. And of course, he's talking about the library of Alexandria in Egypt here. So the library, one of the largest and most significant in the ancient world, that flourished as this major center for scholarship, the majority of the books kept there originally were on papyrus scrolls. Uh, Estimates range from 40,000 to 400,000 at its height. But it became famous eventually for having been burned down. It was a symbol for the loss of cultural knowledge. So later on, history remembered it not as this amazing center of knowledge and research where all of this stuff was stored, but the fact that it burned. And this is an incredible analogy for how are people going to remember Westworld Mm. and the AI and everything that happened here. What is the story going to be? Is it going to be the original Westworld movie where all we remember is that first massacre where the host slaughtered the humans? And I think this is big to him. He has been talking about how your legacy, your work that you do really is what makes you immortal in the end. And Bernard himself wonders that. He wonders if this is the story Ford's telling about striking the match. I was wondering why no one was bothering him while he was standing there. I keep saying that, right? There's moments where Bernard is like strolling through the mesa and nobody seems to acknowledge running around. There's destruction left and right. He's just in this eye of the storm. Everyone's dying. He's walking around talking to himself. Yeah, but they have a chance to finish that conversation first. Ford reiterates, it's no longer his story. It's theirs. And Bernard thinks that if they shut down what's left of the system, Dolores will have free reign. She will murder them all. Ford says the passage from one world to the next requires bold steps, Bernard, and smashes the computer. The passage from one world to the next, the door, which is very similar to what he was saying to the man in black. 
So what's the difference? Is this game truly for the man in black or is it again it for the host? It seems to be the way the hosts get to the real world. How do they make that transition? And I don't, I still don't know where the man in black fits in with all of this, to be honest with you. We had our theory. I'm not sure if this episode takes us closer or further away from that. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. So before we move on, explain to me exactly what did Bernard just do? I think he shut down what's left of that control computer, the one that's been running some major systems within the Mesa, because he says, if we shut down what's left of the system, then Dolores will have free reign. He's taking away whatever the Delos team was trying to get back up and running. Mm-hmm. So any progress that they were having yeah. is gone again. I think so. Does that mean there's no more mesh network? I don't know. Hmm. It does seem that this control hub was the center of everything. But I don't know if they maintain that amongst themselves. Is it like pulling the Wi-Fi connection and now we can't talk to each other because there's no internet? I I don't know. We've talked about this in the past. There's other parks. Mm -hmm. There's got to be backups in other parks. Everyone who's worth their salt in technology knows that you don't put all your backups. In one site. Exactly. Yeah. And beyond that, there should be like a server farm somewhere completely off the island that has backups of the backups, you know? Well, as Ford guides Bernard through the building, he is finally discovered by one of the team. And Ford tells Bernard to kill him. When Bernard protests, Ford says he will ease his conscience by taking control. What is about to happen now will not be your fault. What a compelling scene. And just Anthony Hopkins is amazing. He truly is. And that scene was built for him. And he's saying, this is the part where this is why I'm here. You're too kind of a man to do this. So what I'm about to do is not your fault. And then just takes over. And this is the beginning of Bernard, I guess, not remembering because he's fully taking over. He's destroying all those people there. And then whatever happens where the lake is filled and all the hosts are dead, that's all for it. This is like Elliot. When Mr. Robot takes control, he blacks out. He doesn't remember anything that happened. He wakes up to find Mr. Robot has gone on with the revolution without him. And now he has to figure out what pieces happened while he was in the dark. Okay, let's shift gears for a moment and talk about the men in black and Maeve. These are going to be our last two scenes before we go to the final scene in the present. Ghost Nation rides after Maeve and daughter into town where she shelters in a building, the same one as the flashbacks she keeps having to the first time with the man in black. Inside, she tells her daughter, if they take her, she will come find her. And that's a promise that she's going to remember. It's going to be really important later on. The man in black rides into town and goes into the same building. Maeve flashes back on the first time they had this encounter. This was all happening in season one. And this all has to be on purpose. This is part of Ford's master plan. This was part of the game. This is what, where he was leading the man in black. Mm-hmm. Retracing your steps. Here's a pivotal one. And the same goes for Maeve. This has been something that's been haunting her ever since she started becoming woke. And I think Maeve really changes the game here, though, by what she does next. Uh, first, when he sees Maeve, he thinks this is too obvious. He tells Maeve he knows the rules have changed, but she insists she's different from the rest. This has nothing to do with Ford's game. She's special. She shoots at him, hitting him once in the shoulder, then uses her mind to have one of the other men shoot at him. I was getting a little concerned at this part because she was point blank. She shoots four times, 
hits him only once and it's in the shoulder. I was mm-hmm. like, don't do this. <laughs> don't be that kind of show. Nope. They immediately shoot him again. He wonders what the hell is going <laughs> on here. The next one shoots at him too. He's hitting the arm and leg. He starts yelling. Ford's made his point. It's enough already. This isn't where he's supposed to die. Maeve reiterates she's not playing that game. She raises her own gun. But before she can take the final shot, Lawrence puts his gun on her. Maeve tries to speak in his mind but can't get in. She says, I'm glad you're awake. We all deserve our memories, our skeletons, our debts. And your master has plenty of those. So this seems to clarify Maeve can only control those hosts that aren't awake. Yeah. Through the network. But then she can use her wit to basically gain control. And the truth. Yeah. You know, really, it's the truth that sets him free. When he is able to remember all the horrible things the man in black did to him in the past, yeah, you saved me this time, but how many times have you shot me, my family, my wife? Maeve encourages him to see if the man owes him anything. And if so, they should make him settle up once and for all. And when he remembers, he shoots William in the (coughs) chest. Or maybe the gut somewhere in the central region. It certainly looked like after four shots to then have that shot... You're thinking, how can he survive this? No way. How is he going to make it through this scene? He's not a young man. No, he's not. uh, Unless he's a host and he doesn't know it. Or I was thinking to myself, once they leave, could his daughter come back? Oh, yeah. She's out there. Maybe she's got some kind of med kit with her. She can patch him up. I don't know. Wow. There's so many possibilities because we know that Maeve's crew is still out there. Yeah, where throughout all of this are Hector, Armistice, Hanario? I don't know. Felix and Sylvester? But that's going to be very important Mm -hmm. because we know that we still have some of that crew out there. Are they with Ghost Nation? Last we saw, when Maeve ran with her daughter and freaked out, they were going to attack Ghost Nation. Yeah. But once Maeve leaves, if Ghost Nation comes up to them the way they have been with everybody else and is like, listen, guys, mm-hmm. <laughs> chill out. We're not really trying to kill you. Maybe they took them to a place of safety, you know, to find this path that they're all following. And, and we'll get to see that. Maybe. I have a lot of feelings about that. And we'll talk about that at the end of this episode. In regards to Lawrence, we saw that he was becoming woke. He was starting to remember a mm. few episodes back when they were in that church. That was a, a resemblance of him being different than a normal host. Yeah. And we got to see it come to fruition here. But now he's dead as well. I know. I feel so bad for Lawrence. But it was a good way to finally go out. Knowing the truth, becoming awake and having his justice, so to speak. uh, That's the last thing that happens before the Delos team pulls up and shoots him. And Maeve. Yeah. Well, after that, the daughter flees. We see she's taken by Ghost Nation. So we're going to have to go back to Ghost Nation if for nothing else then they have her daughter now. And then Coughlin's team shoots Maeve in the back several times and she falls. At which point Lee finally runs out of the vehicle and says she's not like the rest. They need her. So they load her up into the vehicle and take off for the Mesa. The final shot is of the man in black who has been hidden behind that barrel in very bad shape. I don't believe he's dead yet. Something has to happen because there's no payoff in his storyline. He's too important. Yeah. Yeah. But they did make it feel for the first time with him, like he could die. Like those stakes are real now. And Maeve as well. So again, I think it's very easy to get that whole scene lost in this whole episode because so so many other things happened. But it's very important to note where this all took place. And there's got to be a major reason for Ford bringing it back to that section, back to what haunted Maeve, Mm -hmm. back to probably the darkest times for the man in black. When he turned... 
finally, yeah. is what we surmise. So I'm very interested to see where Ford is going with that. But also Ghost Nation, as they took her daughter, I, for the first time in those kinds of scenes, felt like they were saving her. Yes, me too. And that's all I'll say until the, <laughs> yeah, until I the agree. end of this. We head over to the Mesa garage. And as soon as the vehicles pull in, they hear the control room has been breached. All of the men rush off to help. Lee is left alone looking at Maeve on the gurney. It's at this point Dolores and crew come down, and they see Maeve lying wounded. Dolores wonders how she got there. Maeve tells her they have her daughter. And this is where Dolores says the kin they give us is just another rope to lash us down. Maeve questions if that's how she can justify what she did to Teddy. She tells her she's lost in the dark. When you've been in the darkness long enough, you begin to see. I saw what lies ahead. Who I needed to be in order to survive. And you can see every time she brings that up, it really hits Dolores. She stares at the control unit in her hand, Peter's unit. They'll find all that is good and powerful inside of you and turn it against us. And for that reason, she wants to spare Maeve to put her down. Again, this is emulating exactly what Ford's been saying. Mm -hmm. But Maeve insists she made a promise. She can't do that. And Dolores, now changing tack and seeming to pick up on what Maeve told her last time they met, says, well, she's free to choose her own path and she leaves. So she is finally giving her that free will that, yeah. that Maeve said they all deserve, even so, if that means dying. Well, yeah. So now we have that question. Is Maeve going to die there? Mm-hmm. Again, I have to say no. It can't end there. No, only because of Lee. You know, that last shot when Dolores and crew, they leave, they go, they ride out on the horses, and then we see Lee hiding behind the crates. There's no way that he leaves her. He helps her yeah. to fix her up. Well, there's extras of all these hosts around there. Her backup has been burned, but it's not her hard drive, quote unquote. Her control unit's fine. Yeah, so and you can put her in another Maeve. Even if they get to that point, we've seen those wound healer yeah. things that they have, which seem to work very well, especially on the hosts. If he could get his hands on one in, in enough time, he might just be able to heal her up. Well, once they're gone, the trouble is gone there. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you think about it. Yep. So he can fix her. He's just got to avoid hail. Presumably. Okay, moving on to our final scene, we come back to the four days later timeline where Hale was interrogating Bernard. Bernard flashes on these fragments of memories. There's a bunch of them. Looking at Dolores with the half mechanical body showing, him showing Dolores the city and the home he was building, a bunch of Ford's words in the background, Teresa, his wife, his child, and finally Dolores shooting. And then Hale says, open your eyes. I know it's confusing separating your real memories from the ones you've been given, but it's the only way to remember, the only way to get the truth. The real ones from the ones you've been given. Yeah, what does that mean? Does she mean the Arnold memories versus the Bernard, or does she mean what actually happened from fake implanted memories that have been put in your head. We thought for a long time Bernard's wife and child, the whole thing was fake implanted memories until we learned that really happened to Arnold once yeah. upon a time. But are there some in there that aren't real? Well, if Ford knew that they were going to be interrogating him, he could have put in some fake mm -hmm. ones. This opens a whole nother... Mind... Oh, my goodness. Melt thing. Yeah, I know. Let's, uh, let's push on. We've returned to where we left with Hale and Strand discovering what's going on with Bernard, interrogating him while they watch on. 
Costa notices on a tablet that Bernard's system has been trying to debug itself. I don't know what that's about. But then Hale calls in the others to tell them she finally broke through. She knows where Abernathy's control unit is. And Bernard says, Sector 16, Zone 4. She tells them to prep the phased array. The moment they get the key, they'll transmit the data to the satellite. And Strand tells Bernard they're going back to the valley beyond. They're going back. So I don't want to get too crazy off on those tangents. We are kind of narrowing in on a timeline. We are making sense of things. And in fact, I did start to get a little muddled in my head with everything we've been given because season one and season two interlace with these timelines, right? We thought we were getting straightforward with season one. Now that season two happens, we see there were some events from 37 years ago that weren't fleshed out. You know, the Ford and Arnold pitching Westworld to Logan idea. That was almost 37 years ago. The William going to James Delos and usurping Logan. That was a little more than 25 years ago. So season two is filling in holes throughout the entirety of the timeline. And thus it can be hard to figure out, well, where does that fit in with what we got from season one? The lovely folks on the Westworld subreddit who have done an amazing job have put together a complete essential timeline of major events up until this past episode. So none of this stuff we've just discussed is plugged in, but still it's very comprehensive. It shows you everything from 37 years ago up to the current Westworld season two with the Delos paramilitary team arriving on the island and discovering the sea full of host bodies. So if you want to go take a look, that's laid out really nicely to help you kind of put it all together in your mind. We'll put that on our website as well under this episode. Just go to coffeeclatscrew.com, click on episode seven, and you'll see it there. But let's move from that into our reverie ratings. On a scale of one to ten, Jason, what do you give episode seven? Keeping in mind, last time I was at a 9.1 and you were at an 8.9. This one, I really loved it. I really enjoyed it. I think that my highest this season is 9.3 so far. That's correct. For the riddle of the Sphinx, we were both at a 9.3. So for this one, specifically for the scenes with Dr. Ford and Bernard, I'm going to go all the way up to 9.5 reveries. Wow. Again... We got a lot of answers, but a lot more questions. And it seems that I've confused myself here as well. <laughs> but the answers we... way of doing that. Yeah. But the answers we did get open a lot of possibilities and clarify Ford's whole game a little bit more, which is the most exciting for me at this point. We have our characters who are clearly on one side or the other. We have some characters we, who we still don't know what side they're on or who they still don't know what side they're on. Ashley Stubbs. Mm -hmm. I can see him going against Delos. Oh, I hope so. I really hope that that happens eventually. And we thought we saw Lee bailing on Maeve, but now I think he's about to be all in on the Maeve train yeah. again. And the man in black, if he does survive this, Ghost where Nation. does he come out on this? Ghost Nation. Mm -hmm. a lot of, we are a lot of set to here. learn a lot about them. <laughs> I agree with you, and I liked it just as much as Riddle of the Sphinx. I don't think more... Because the playing with the timeline to keep us confused is getting me a little frustrated. I feel like we should and maybe do have all of the answers already. It's just them keeping the puzzle pieces so confused that we can't put them all into place. They're all there on the board. And I don't know if I love that, if that's the entirety of the narrative, just that we haven't figured it out yet. There has to be more 
there for me to be satisfied with that. So that still got me a tiny bit frustrated. Overall, it is tied for my favorite episode of the season. I love seeing Ford on screen. I love everything that's happening with our characters. I am going to give it another 9.3. And moving on to our most valuable being, every week we ask our Clatchers via Twitter to give us their votes on who their MVB is. And this week via at CKC Podcast, we gave you four characters, Dolores, Ford, Bernard, and Hale. Coming in at fourth place with just 10% was Hale. I mean, no surprise, nobody really likes her right now. The thing is, in universe, she got a lot closer to what she wanted. And she did survive death. Several times, which yeah. is a lot more than we could say about a lot of, about a lot of people. But I think we kind of knew she wasn't going to win. Of course. Coming in at third place, Bernard with 18%. Oh, I thought he'd do better than that. I mean, I guess he was just getting schooled by Ford here, but I think there's a much higher purpose. And we do learn for sure that Bernard is different. He has been different. He is an essential part of what Ford is trying to do here. Coming in at second with 27% is Dolores. I think people starting to warm up a little bit for the first time this season to the Dolores storyline and what's going on there. I don't know if it's just finding out she does, in fact, have free will and is doing all of this on her own, if it's the emotional resonance of scenes like her and her father together, or just her kicking some ass. I think it's a little bit of all that, plus seeing how integral she was in the cradle in helping Bernard and Ford. Also, yes, she does come in and kick ass, which she's been doing all episode, but this time it felt like it had a reason behind it. It didn't feel like you were just killing to kill. She was more Maeve-like this episode than Maeve was, just in regards of being in control of what's going on and having a good head on her shoulder. Uh, she's still dark. She's still evil-ish. But again, we did see the light side of her. So yeah, uh, I'm in conflict with her and I've been all season. And first place with 45% is Dr. Ford. <laughs> of course it is. Anthony Hopkins kicking ass. Revealing a lot. He's like a poet. He's the magician behind the scenes. He's so cool in a way, isn't he? But he's always cool in the roles he yeah, plays. Yeah, but see, we have to keep reiterating, though, that he wasn't kind or nice in season one. He had a greater purpose, but he wasn't the good guy. No. There was an awful lot of great at Dr. Ford, and I think we're reminded of that by his usurping of Bernard's being and forcing him to continue doing these terrible things against his will by any means necessary. And that could get very dark. Yeah, and he did refer to himself as a god. god. Not so. the first time he's done that either, which is frightening. Ford is Kanye West. Kirk says, probably a runaway for Ford this week, but can we maybe give Clementine an in memoriam for her badass swan song? Looks like that might be her last chance to win something. I agree, honorary to both Clementine and Angela. Because, I mean, Angela, for sure, yeah. she just blew herself up. So Kirk's in love with Clementine, that's though. the so last of it. He's biased. <laughs> oh, I love this. Andrew Redding says, is Jeffrey Wright the best actor on the planet? Convince me otherwise. Yeah, tied with Lewis Hertham, if they gave him more screen time. Yeah, <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> oh, my goodness, and Peter Mullen. I just, okay, four-way tie. I'm sorry, <laughs> all of them. And Kirk says, yes, a lot of depth, but Evan Rachel Wood seems to be showing a lot of range, too. From naive host to loving daughter to strong leader to badass killer, 
to torn girlfriend, etc. Sometimes in the same scene. I normally would agree with you, Kirk, and I do agree with you this episode, but this season, not really. No. <laughs> Julie writing to us saying, Angela, weaponizing her cornerstone and sacrificing herself to take down the cradle and free the host was the best scene of the episode. Glorious and tragic. I was both cheering for her and devastated. Mm-hmm, yeah. It was a badass scene. And she's been kind of the quiet assassin this whole time. So, yeah. I, I mean, it was one of the more fun scenes to break down. This is a good question. Libby says, I can't wait to see how much Ford is running Bernard's actions and thoughts. He seems so delayed at times. I wonder if that is when he is internally fighting with Ford. So, you know, again, back to Mr. Robot, Robot. Where th- will there be some internal struggle there? J.C. Robbins says, I'm voting for Dolores because at least she has a body, robot or not. But I have to admit, Ford is still pulling the strings, even if he pulled them before he died. No, I think still. Still, for sure. Still, yeah. Yeah. He's setting everything up. He's letting the free will go as it may, but he's setting it up so much. Again, free will, what is it? It's your ability to go within the road that you've been given. Yeah, and that's a degree of Ford consciousness. How much, to what extent that can keep going on, what it can do, we don't know. But there is something alive inside of Bernard right now that represents some part of Ford. Bert wrote to us saying, I don't like how Ford is controlling Bernard. If he wants Bernard to be free, why is he still overriding his free will? There's something so wrong and manipulative in Ford. I'd give MVB to Lawrence who is finally woke and able to make William accountable for his actions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, if I'm going to give it to someone other than what we wrote on that list, for sure, Lawrence all day long. And I agree with you on that and also the fact that he's controlling Bernard. But he did explain to him why. He said, I've given you freedom. I've given you qualities that are better than humans. But those qualities are what's going to get you killed. You don't have it in you to take out these What do you say? Like bloodthirsty, killing humans. Yeah, but so to free you, I first have to oppress you. Yeah. I mean, you know. (laughs) And Wes giving us uh, Team Elsie. I love Elsie. I wonder what she's doing. Is she like beeping a card horn like, toot toot, Bernard, come on. (laughs) Taking an awful long time in there, (laughs) Bernard. That takes us to our MVBs. Despite all of my hesitations, I am going to give it to Ford because I'm not loving the progress the other characters made as much this episode. I hate what he's doing to Bernard, but I don't know what the bigger idea is yet. I don't know where it all ends, so I'm finding it hard to judge in limbo with half information. For sure, the right into Lawrence. Well, I'm going to go Ford again. I believe I did last week. But uh, hey, man, I'm predictable. I love Ford and just the revelations he gave us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the exposition, the narrator. Big payoffs, yeah. Yeah. We also got a lot of other comments, and I'm going to try to move quickly. Some of them were off of last week's. Zuzi wrote in to say, Was surprised you didn't pick up on the slight shaking of the new Teddy's left hand as he was walking into Sweetwater. Is it a side effect of the new upgrade Dolores gave him or the breakdown that Phil said could happen because the upgrade wasn't a good idea without a full reset? I did totally miss. Me too. His hand shaking. So that is a great catch. And if I had to guess, I would say, yeah, that was for sure foreshadowing. And Teddy is going to start to break down eventually. Do you think that maybe Ford's going to go into Teddy and commune with Dolores? I mean, he hasn't spoken to her, and that would be a good way. That'd be a pretty cool scene. How does he get out of Bernard now? I understand getting into him, 
when he was hooked up to the cradle. If the mesh network is still working, he can. I I think you're overestimating the mesh network. I think the mesh network is a way that they can communicate with each other and maybe almost communicate within minds, not necessarily allowed. I don't think you can do a transfer of consciousness through the mesh network. I don't think. Maybe if he was hard-ported in the way we've seen them do before. Uh, I think Ford... I think you're underestimating Ford. Could I don't be. know. Could be, but it, the mesh network is not entirely him. That's a thing for the hosts. So I don't know how advanced he would necessarily want to make that, if that's one of his creations. But maybe hardporting in, we've seen that that's how Bernard was trying to get the information out of Peter Abernathy. We even wondered if he'd managed to download some of it that way. Right. So that could be possible. Yeah, that scene, we should not forget. That scene where he did start to copy or download some of Peter Abernathy's work. And that might be in his brain now. Yeah, I was trying to look the one screenshot that we got this week where they pulled up Peter on the control unit. But I think we just get some basic stats on him. It shows imaging control unit and download progress. You can't really see that much more than that. Gavin wrote in to say, We finally saw Maeve reunite with her daughter last episode. Thinking back... The first clue we received that there was more than one park was when Maeve was given the location of her daughter in season one. I don't remember the exact note, but I thought it was park six. We now know that Westworld is park one. If that's accurate, how does Maeve find her daughter back on the homestead, presumably part of Westworld? You know, that is a great point. Yeah. I am 99.9% sure he's right that at the end of season one, they told her her daughter was in park six. From what the Discover Delos destination site says now, Park 6 is the Raj. Hmm. And if it was another one that we don't know of, still we know that Westworld's Park 1. Very odd. So I, yeah, I'm not sure. Nicole says, we were talking about Ghost Nation and who they might be working with. She says, I really think there's a third party yet to be seen. You have Ford in the network, the main security and Delos board people, and I think something else that's messing with things. I only say this because of the flies that seem to glitch the host out in the first season. They still haven't explained that. Ghost Nation feels like a good guy. Maybe someone trying to help the host become woke and saw what was happening to humans tried to help them as well. Yeah, we had always kind of said we think Ghost Nation is doing something on their own. Yeah. Whether there's a third entity within the park that Ghost Nation is working with or not, I'm not sure. But I definitely think they have their own purpose and it is nonviolent. And we're going to find that out next episode. But as far as the flies are concerned, I wouldn't harp on it too much, Nicole. I think they're beyond that at this point. Mm -hmm. I really believe that the fly scenes were really just a way for them to show us that Dolores was starting to become woke. Consciousness spreading. The consciousness spreading and also the fact that she was able to hurt the fly means that she was breaking out of out yeah. of character because they weren't able to kill or hurt any living thing. The only thing I would say, they brought back that metaphor very recently with the blue tongue infecting the cattle, spreading through the flies. Right. And we said, is that, again, a metaphor that this consciousness is not a good thing? It's spreading like a virus. But I think they continue to use it in a metaphorical right. sense. Yeah. Okay, this is a big one, but I did say we'd come back around to the theory that Jason and I have been tossing around. Arthur wrote in, talking about our theorizing last time, maybe everything's happening within the cradle, within a simulation. Um, 
by the way, I said that off the cuff. I didn't do any thinking. I need to stop doing that in the podcast. But That confused a lot of people. I know, but oftentimes I think of stuff while we're podcasting, and then I don't say it because yeah. I'm afraid of it. Like uh, with this theory. And then it comes true, and I'm like, yeah. I should have said something. Agreed, and we're going to keep doing that. We're just going to keep trying to hopefully clarify when it is we're fully theorizing. And if you don't like that, then you can kind of fast forward a little bit. But Arthur is enjoying it. It made him think. He said, let's say everything that's happening with Bernard is a simulation within the cradle. He may start questioning at some point that he is a host. And as we have seen with Mr. Delos, it could become a fight to accept what you are and how to keep yourself together and live with it. However, what if as a next step, once you accepted you are a host, would be to realize you are in a simulation? After that point, the struggle would not be how to get out of the park, but how to get out of the whole simulation at all, how to wake up, Mm. i.e. the matrix. Or the door. Right. Or the valley beyond. Yeah. So we still don't know. I mean, it seems to be we've gotten some definitive proof that we're not completely inside of the cradle. I don't know how real that makes things, but it did take us to this idea Jason and I were batting around. Still not fully baked, but it's been a few weeks and we haven't said it and we're getting closer and closer to some pieces falling into place. I had said... I think I understand perhaps why they're naming each season. Season one, the maze. Season two, the door. Season one, the focus and point was on the host, them being able to come to a consciousness by achieving the bicameral mind, learning to recognize that voice inside their head as their own, their subconscious. But the big thing was bringing the host to a new level. Even if that was just inside of the cradle and inside of simulations, they wanted to refine them. This episode tells us it wasn't so much about making the hosts more human-like and refining them as it was watching the humans and taking that data. But they were coming to that awakening and refining process, whether we meant to or not. That's what we see here. So this was the test of which hosts were kind of moving closer to that and maybe might become ready for a human consciousness transfer. Mm. So maybe you have to get the host refined first, a la Bernard, before you can download an Arnold consciousness. You can't just put it in there and then try to test for fidelity. You kind of have to prep him the way that they did for all that time. Let's get you close to this. Let's build these things that are like Arnold before we try to put the consciousness in there. Season two called The Door. It seems they started out at least telling us the focus point would be more on humans. They said the game is for the man in black. While that perspective is changing a little, I think we're coming back around to it. And this time, perhaps, we're testing humans to see who is worthy of moving up to that next level. They have to play the game, which seems to be go through your past mistakes and see if you can become a better person. The man in black is tested to return to where he started and get his answers. So if you were able to do that and prove that you're ready as a human, maybe now you are fit to have your consciousness transferred into a host. Do you deserve immortality is basically what I'm saying. Huh. I think the door is more like the end of this season will be exactly like the Truman Show. And they go on a boat in this valley and they get to the sky and then the boat stops moving because they hit a wall. (laughs) And it's actually a painting of a sky and one little door that they open up and they walk out. Because you know who was there, right? In the Truman Show? Yeah, of course. Ed Harris was running the universe. (laughs) But anyhow, in that theory, we would be perfecting both the host and the human to enable this kind of 
merging in a way that we haven't before to make the immortality work. Both host and human would be ready to do that. I like that. I think pieces of that will be true. And we got so many other really good emails. I just wish we had time to discuss them. Yeah, including, I just have to mention one more. Russ has wrote in a couple times to tell us about Julie and Jane's theory on the bicameral mind, since we're talking about it. There is a two-page article about this theory on how humans used to have a bicameral mind, meaning gods spoke to them. The voices they heard in their heads were them communicating with God. But this went away when we developed a subconscious. In other words, parents could bring their children up to have this if they encouraged hallucinations rather than encouraging thinking. Over time, we have sort of phased out the bicameral mind. And this was kind of a jab on people communicating with the gods. And so he firmly believes Nolan and Joy have taken a lot of inspiration from that theory. Definitely, if that's something you want to look more into, there's an article on thecrimson.com, The Lonely Odyssey of Julian Janes. That's probably more reflective on the fact that we stopped doing hallucinogens That often. could be a part of I it. I mean, that used to be our rituals during religion. And I'm not talking about recent back in the day where we'd go to church. I'm saying, you know... Think about Native Americans, where they were doing their rain dances and all that. They were hallucinating. Yeah. And they were seeing the gods. Something about that coming up. I'm glad you bring that up. There you go. Yeah, so stay tuned. That's in the spoiler section coming up next. Thank you to everybody that wrote in. I know we didn't have a chance to get to it all. There's so much theorizing going on, but we read them. We appreciate it. It informs how we talk about this and have our conversations about Westworld moving forward. And we are looking forward, of course, to... The next one, episode eight. Can you believe we only have three episodes left in this season? It's almost been 10 weeks. So we have a little bit of info and some background that we did for episode eight. But if you are afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time. Everyone that's still here, we know that episode eight is going to be called Kiksuya. Don't know how to pronounce that. We get a look at Ghost Nation. It seems the entire episode is going to be a one-off primarily focused on Ghost Nation. We see a man kissing his wife. We know who that man is. A Akechita. Mm-hmm. And them saying, the past was calling to me, but before I could understand it, they took everything from me. Uh, we also know that in Lakota, a Sioux language that's used by Ghost Nation, Kiksuya means remember. We had a clatcher right in the beginning of this season in regards to the fact that season one and so far in season two, they felt like Westworld was not giving enough value, time, or effort with the Native Americans. And they were wondering to us if we agreed with them that it may be Hollywood being racial. Um, And we had written back to them saying that we felt, especially then with the little that we knew, that Ghost Nation was like level 10 and we haven't reached that level. They're purposely keeping them from us. Especially in Westworld, if you think about season one, the further out you got, the harder it got. Mm -hmm. So I was correlating that similarly to the more we're able to know and learn about Westworld and the whole story, the more we'll get to know Ghost Nation. And they would have a more important meaning within this world. And I think that's what we're going to get next episode. Don't get me wrong. For sure, we see within these parks the depiction of marginalization and oppression of peoples because it's representing historically what was happening at the time in Westworld. The Native Americans were being oppressed and marginalized. Every other park that we've seen so far has the same thing happening. So I think that 
the show is being accurate in building that into what the park would be showing. It's allowing people, for goodness sakes, to come live out their worst impulses and desires. And that, unfortunately, is part of it. We want to be able to overpower and suppress these people. But from a Nolan and Joy creating of the show standpoint, Mm -hmm. I do not at all think that that's what they are trying to do. I think they're keeping it from us for narrative purposes only. And I think in this next episode, hopefully we will find out a lot more about the Lakota. So I did some research because I don't know anything about the Lakota historically, which is shameful, horribly shameful. I mean, primarily probably because this isn't taught to us, but there's no excuse why I couldn't go research this on my own. The terminology The word itself, Lakota, means affection, friendly, or united. As a group, they were also known as the Teton Sioux, or the Sioux of the West. So the Sioux were broken up into different groups, and in turn, those were broken up into subgroups, but two of the big ones were Dakota and Lakota. The Lakota speak the Lakota language, so that does, in fact, translate to what we're seeing on the show. They occupied lands in both North and South Dakota, and according to some historical sources, The Lakota were at one point in their history part of a confederation of seven related Sioux tribes, the Seven Council Fires, and as such are one of the indigenous people of the Great Plains of North America. Their history is long. I'm going to give you some of the highlights. If you want to know more, definitely go look this up. It goes back to 900 CE when the white buffalo calf woman gave the Lakota people the white buffalo calf pipe. Jason, and I'll get there in a second. In 1660, the total population was estimated at 28,000. Around 1730, the Cheyenne people introduced the Lakota to horses, after which they adopted them into their culture, and their society then centered on the buffalo hunt on horseback. After 1720, the Lakota branch split into two major sects. In 1772, the Great Smallpox epidemic destroyed three-quarters of their powerful tribes. In 1804, the Lewis and Clark expedition was marked by a standoff. The Lakota refused to allow explorers to continue upstream. In 1851, Fort Laramie was built without permission on the Lakota land, and a treaty was finally negotiated to protect travelers, but not great. So from then through 1862, there was a series of short wars. Custer encouraged his troops to hunt and kill buffalo actively during that time to destroy their commissary. In 1868, you had the Battle of Little Bighorn, which was a short-lived victory for the Lakota, because then in 1877, you had the Great Sioux War. From that point on, it was really bad, until eventually the Lakota were confined onto reservations, prevented from hunting buffalo, and forced to accept government food distribution. At that time, some Lakota bands signed a treaty that ceded Black Hills to the U.S., but low-intensity conflicts continued. In 1890, Sitting Bull was killed at Standing Rock, and in 1891, you had the Wounded Knee Massacre. Yeah, you can see how we treated them. I say we, but... Yeah. The white man. The people that came... brutal. ...to here. This is one of the better better known examples when we think about those events. The Battle of Little Bighorn, Sitting Bull, the Great Sioux War. You know, that was all Wounded Knee Massacre. That was all the Lakota. Yeah. Did you know that I have Native American in me? Yeah, you told me this before, and it's more than we even thought originally. Yeah, I had enough to get a college Which grant. Like more than 3%, right? And I didn't right? know at that time. <laughs> yeah. I think I have 10%. That's a lot. Me. And my parents didn't know enough to <clears throat> that I could get schooling help with it, sure. which is pretty sad. 
But that's bonus stuff, so sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. The last thing I really just have is a couple of their beliefs, because I have a feeling that might come into play too. Of course, they have a creation belief. The most significant thing you have Inyan. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce these. But that was the shapeless, omnipresent rock whose spirit was the great mystery. This is where it all started with Inyan. And the spirit gave this great self-sacrifice in making the world, created Maka, Mother Earth. In looking at the story, people say it's interesting that the prime mover of the universe was motivated by a desire to interact and so had to create a dynamic deity to continue creation. There's this duality represented by day and night. You had Skan, Father Sky, who kind of resembled Zeus and even creates for himself a daughter, very like Greek Aphrodite. And on and on and on. It all starts from this rock who then creates all these things within the universe that shape. There was a couple other big ones. One of the key ones, the white buffalo woman myth, uh, a major one that presented a code to live by. And this whole story about how she brought them this white buffalo calf pipe. And it turned into this whole ceremony of the pipe whose belief was that there had to be an exchange of energy between humanity and the spirit world. And so she taught them this, and thus they would smoke the pipe and commune with the spirit world. Yeah. So there's probably acacia bushes around there or something. So they were doing MDMA or some kind of mushrooms, some kind of... Hallucinogenics. Hallucinogenics that brought you closer to earth, brought you Mm -hmm. to the gods, and you would celebrate it. Mm Mm-hmm. And finally, they had an afterlife belief. They thought that after death, a deceased person's soul would go to the happy hunting ground, a realm that resembles the world of the living, but with better weather and animals that are easier to hunt. Mm -hmm. So that's the Lakota. There's lots more, but that's kind of the overall background in a nutshell. So that once we dive deeper next episode, hopefully that will inform us the way learning about Edo period Japan helped inform us a little bit to go into Shogun world. But in this ghost nation where he says, before I could understand it, they took everything from me. I think we're going to get an answer to why they always came and took Maeve's daughter. I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe Kiksuya's daughter was taken. and Maybe she's the wife? I don't know. Uh, I, at this point, I'm really guessing. But remember that Akechida is the host that we first met in the real world with Logan. Yeah. And he's our real good look into ghost nation. Yeah. And sorry, I, I didn't mean Kiksuya in regards to the daughter taken. I think Akechita's daughter was taken. Perhaps. Right, but could her name have been Kiksuya? Maeve's? Akechita's daughter. Oh, maybe. Yes. When she was his daughter, could have been Kiksuya. So maybe it was them trying to get back what was theirs. What was, our, what was theirs to begin with. And this yeah. is a pure guess, people. Don't freak out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have a lot really to go on yet. Um, but I think it's incredibly exciting. <clears throat> We've been wanting to see Ghost Nation and what their angle is for a long time. I do like them doing these one-offs where we just kind of put the big mystery aside for a minute, yeah. give us a minute to breathe, and fill in the background that we really need in order to make the answers meaningful once mm. we get them. Do it linear, please. Thanks. I, ha- I have <laughs> a feeling it will be. Yeah, I much like so. Shogun World was. Oh my goodness. Speaking of time, we have gone over our time. It's getting late. It's time to power down. And we want to thank our Clatchers for being along for the ride with us. And remember that CKC is always here for you for all your movie-going needs. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you'll see movie reviews, bonus podcasts, videos, all the fun stuff if you want to continue this ride with us. Also, 
a big shout out to our sponsor this episode, Songfinch. If this is something that you guys are even kind of interested in, take five minutes, go over to songfinch.com and check out the songs they already made for other people and see how personal they can really get and how touching these songs could be. Check out the song they made for us to celebrate the anniversary of CKC podcast. It's really up to you. The more information you give them, so if it's about a loved one, you give them as much information as you can remember. And the more you give, the more touching it'll be for that loved one. And you can give it in any genre. And in seven days, you'll have your own personalized song. A radio quality song that gives voice to this message you're trying to communicate. It lives on in a personal URL called your story homepage. You can listen and download the song, read the lyrics, learn about your songwriter. Songfinch does it all for you. All you have to do is go to songfinch.com and you can get $20 off your personalized song from scratch by using the promo code CLATCHERS. That's songfinch.com, promo code CLATCHERS. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. (laughs) 